1980, Procter & Gamble withdrew boxes of Rely tampons from the shelves after the Centers for Disease Control determined that it was the most significant tampon contributing to the onset of toxic shock syndrome. The CDC urged all women to minimize use and avoid, if possible, superabsorbent tampons, since this category had the greatest association with toxic shock syndrome. The advice, however, was hollow because there was no standardized product labeling. The intersection of menstruation, tampons, laboratory practices, and policy fueled discussions marked an important precedent in setting lab method and labeling standards. I'm Barbara Sibold, News and Humanities Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Shara Vostrel. Associate Professor of History in the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Dr. Vostrel wrote a medical humanities article published in CMAJ entitled Toxic Shock Syndrome, Tampons, and the Syngina Lab Apparatus. In the article, she takes readers through the fascinating history of tampons and laboratory testing. She is joining me today from West Lafayette, Indiana to discuss her article. Welcome, Shara. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're very glad to have you. I wanted to begin by asking if you could um, briefly describe what happened after the Center for Disease Control issued a warning about superabsorbent tampons. Well, in 1980, there was a lot of uh, concern, really, and fear about tampons and the number of women, the number of healthy women who were contracting toxic shock syndrome and that and the way that it was related to tampons themselves. And so the CDC issued this warning that women should avoid superabsorbent and high absorbent tampons, but there was no way for women to really do this. And so what the CDC did was work together with the um, Food and Drug Administration and the Food and Drug Administration was interested in hearing from manufacturers in particular about a voluntary standard to regulate the nomenclature of the way that tampons were labeled and also regulate the absorbencies themselves so that they would be consistent across categories and across brands. And so the FDA reached out to another organization called the ASTM. And the ASTM stands for the Association for Standards in, no, the American Society for Testing and Materials, but it never goes by that. It always goes by ASTM. So the American Society for Testing and Materials is a really old organization. And originally they were interested in like train track gauges and the consistency of steel and things like that. But across all industries, it's really important that screws have the same kinds of threads and things like that. But by the 1980s, tampons now were one of the things that could be regulated as a medical device. And so with ASTM, uh, they brought on the manufacturers, representatives from manufacturers such as Kimberly Clark uh, and uh, Tam Brands that makes Tampax. And a different element, though, was a new program with ASTM, which included consumers. And so ASTM reached out to other consumer groups, um, in particular, the National Consumers League. And they helped to get consumer groups placed on this new 
big committee called the Tampon Task Force. And it was really one of the first times that manufacturers had to negotiate and talk with consumers. Um, also important was that uh, women were included in this too. And that was really the work of one woman um, named Becky Laboon. And she felt strongly that if consumers are going to be re represented, that they, they needed to include women who were some of them, who were the major users of tampons. And who better to sort of say what was important to them than women tampon users themselves. So the tampon task force came about after this recall of rely tampons and after the FDA said, okay, we need to get voluntary standards from corporations and then with the input of consumers to really create a set of um, standards for absorbency and nomenclature to just have it make more sense for tampon users to actually avoid the highest absorbency if that's really what they did not want to use. That's very interesting. Uh, many, many of our uh, listeners will be familiar with the story of HIV drug development in the 1980s and early 90s. And at that time, activists got involved in many aspects of the scientific research and even changed the way authorities approached clinical trial design. But this predates the uh, HIV story. And why do you think it was that consumers were invited to be involved at this point? Well, you're right. It does predate. It, it's contiguous, but it also predates HIV. And I think I think some of the differences between the science about HIV and the science about tampons is one that, you know, tampons have been around a long time. They've been around since the 1930s. So it was a familiar product. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of women have, have used had used tampons up until that point. So it wasn't a strange new thing that the tampons appeared. Um, and I think another difference was that it was a medical device instead of an, an infectious or a communicable disease. So that, well, one woman in particular who was on the tampon task force named Esther Rome was part of the Boston Women's Health Book Collective. And she was very emphatic that, that menstruation was a normal, natural bodily process. And that to somehow say that there was a risk involved about menstruation was absolutely incorrect, that the risk was entirely upon the... <laughs> It was entirely about the tampon, not about women's bodies. So it was a different, just a sort of a different category in which illness evolved from uh, being linked to a medical device compared to a virus. Um, and obviously there are different social, cultural contexts for both those things. I think that because it was, well, a tampon and menstruation is not particularly a valued, uh, embraced bodily process that a lot of things were not recognized and sort of went under the radar because of it. I mean, and this was sort of the heyday of feminism too. I suppose that had a role to play. Yeah, it's an interesting moment in feminism, especially again with the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, because especially at this time, there was a very strong pushback against medical professionals. And women, especially who from the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, who wrote Our Bodies Ourselves, saying, wait a minute, a lot of these physicians are 
arrogant. They're not listening to us. They're ignoring us. And we need to get information about our bodies and we need to share it with other women. So this attitude of really sort of saying, no, we need information about our own reproductive health and we're going to get it any way we can was really significant because uh, for women like Esther Rome, uh, menstruation was really a marker of health. And it just was ridiculous in her mind to have it uh, be considered an, an illness or you know something that was somehow wrong. And she's also pushing back against an androcentric model of the human body and saying, no, women are different. Women need different, we need, we need to push back about the privilege really that's given to the male body as the universal body because it simply is not. And so her saying that we need to be included on our own terms was, was very important at this moment. Um, and I think we still haven't quite made it through this transition. I think there's certainly recognition that there's differences between men and women, but then we also, we also uh, fall to the edges of looking at men and women as essentially different and we're human at the same time. So it's important to not entirely say, oh, well, uh, only women get breast cancer because men get breast cancer too. So it's we're in a both and situation with that. But at that moment, it really was very important for the women's health activists to stand up and to say, no, menstruation is really important. We need women's voices here. Uh, we're the ones that are, are becoming ill and you all need to help us do something about this. So aside from the, or in addition to the sort of feminist aspect, um, much of the controversy seems to center around the Syngina laboratory apparatus and how it was used. Can you just describe that a little bit? What was that controversy about? Well, part of the issue for the tampon task force was deciding upon a method of measuring tampon absorbency. So to set a standard for the tampons, you first have to set a standard for how do you measure the absorbency. And so within the industry, the Syngina test was shared. It was part of conversations amongst the manufacturers. And it's a test that came out of um, a 1958 lab report from the Campana Corporation, which is no longer in existence. And Campana wanted to show that their tampon called Persets was the most absorbent. And so GW Rapp, who was a biologist, he set out to create a way of measuring absorbency. And he tried a few different things, like using a dropper test on tampons, uh, dropping a tampon into a beaker full of fluid. He also used women as test subjects to see how much fluid tampons absorbed as well. But in all these methods, he, he couldn't push aside as many variables as he wanted to. Women's bodies had a lot of variables, as, and he really wanted something that was much more reproducible. And so this Syngina apparatus that he created is a glass tube and then pulled with inside of this tube is a condom to represent the vaginal canal. And then around this condom is a warm water bath. There's a hydrostatic head as well, which regulates the flow of a synthetic fluid, a synthetic menstrual fluid. Uh, sometimes it's called blue goo. 
which we often see represented in commercials uh, as an aside. And this blue goo was a sort of a thick fluid made with carboxylmethyl cellulose and salt and some sodium biocarbonate. And they also used, or they used sometimes saline as well. And the hydrostatic head could control the flow uh, going into this this uh, condom that was pulled taut within this glass tubing. So they would insert a tampon at a measured distance into this Sinjana apparatus, turn on the hydrostatic head and let the uh, synthetic menstrual fluid start to flow. And then once the first drip came down to the end of the tampon, that would be the end of the test. And they would have measured the tampon before for its weight in grams. And then they would measure it the second time. And that would give them uh, a sense of how much the tampon absorbed. Of course, the apparatus had to be tinkered with quite a bit because often the fluid would just run around the edges and it wouldn't actually absorb into the tampon. Yet that's sometimes what happens with tampons. So that's not necessarily an error of the test, but that also was contested as well. So for the women activists on the tampon task force, one of their concerns was the, well, the Sangina was not the best, they thought, because it really didn't represent women's bodies and the variation of women's bodies and their reproductive organs. But more importantly, it never tested menstrual fluid. And what would the absorption of tampons look like if they were absorbing menstrual blood instead of saline? And no one had tested that. So that was really their their main concern about this test, that if you're going to set a standard, what does it mean that it's not even including menstrual fluid? It was uh, Esther Rome and Nancy Ream who wanted to convince the tampon task force um, that heparinized blood rather than saline would have produced a more accurate absorbency data. Um, and we've already discussed why heparinized blood might be a better choice than saline, um, but why wouldn't the FDA, why wouldn't the task force go ahead with that? Well, the, the FDA was not really involved per se with a tampon task force and its sort of date, you know, monthly meetings or bi-monthly meetings. Uh, but for the manufacturers, many of them felt that it just wasn't necessary. Uh, it wasn't they felt that the saline was reproducible. Uh, they complained that even though it was heparinized blood, that it clotted. Uh, they also complained that blood would not be consistent across different test batches. Uh, the, the different consumer groups, including Esther Rome and also Nancy Rehm, who was the nursing professor who was working on behalf of the consumer groups, they they really didn't did not believe that it was difficult to work with it at all. Uh, Nancy Rehm set up tests side by side with saline um, and blood within her lab at the University of Michigan, and the overall order of the tampons was the same. But at the highest absorbency category, there were some tampons that absorbed more blood than saline. And so this to her indicated that the actual um, the actual categorization of those particular tampons would be misleading because 
in the body, they would absorb more than they did in the lab. And so women uh, might be using the wrong absorption when they really meant to use a lesser absorbing tampon. The other thing that the activists felt was that it just was unsavory for the other mostly guys in the labs to use menstrual blood. It wasn't uh, it wasn't traditionally practiced to use menstrual blood. Um, it was against the status quo. And they felt that there just wasn't enough. There wasn't enough support and enough probably feminist support within the corporations as well to use to use blood. So it, it was a number of factors, but it is significant that those higher absorbing tampons absorbed differently. And did those tests that um, Nancy Reem did, did they lead to any changes in the labeling? Uh, no, they didn't. No one would agree to move ahead with that. So that is an incomplete element of the, uh, or a flaw of the, the testing that is still done uh, because saline is the standard. So saline is still the standard now? It is. And have they improved their testing methodology at all? Have they got a better better apparatus? Uh, not that I know of. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's still the same apparatus. That's amazing. All these years later, and nothing's changed. <laughs> I know. Well, and this, this sort of goes to the, the idea that it's all the same. Like women bleed the same. They're... Their vaginal canals are the same. Even one of the early, um, the early inventors of Tampax, who created the Tampax tampon as well as the telescopic cardboard ad- applicator to re- insert the tampon, uh, he was an osteopathic physician by training, and he said in some of his interviews, you know, if you'd seen one vagina, you'd seen them all. So it it really didn't matter. Women were instrumentalized into this apparatus. Uh, so any difference and really any importance of menstrual fluid was totally made invisible. That's crazy. Um, what would you like physicians to take from the story of the angina and toxic shock syndrome? Well, part of it is really just to question medical training. Medical training has done wonderful things, but it also uh, it also sometimes conceals and hides cultural assumptions, assumptions about people of difference. And I think especially as we're moving into a very, uh, into this moment of scientific medicine and the importance of scientific studies related to medicine, it sometimes undermines ways of knowing that can't be measured, uh, that it's really important uh, to question these standards and question the tests and who is included and who is not included and what assumptions are what assumptions are built in to the tests because sometimes the solutions are not necessarily about the science sometimes the solutions are about culture and changing our ideas about cultural assumptions and norms that's an excellent point i want to thank you so much for speaking with us today it's really been a pleasure well thank you I've been speaking with Dr. Shara Volstrel, Associate Professor in History in the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. To read the Humanities article she authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our CMAJ podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels. Thank you for listening. <music>